0: I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Tuesday, March 29th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Heard a couple of Harvey Weinstein references today. Do we know if the Academy is considering punishment for Will Smith? Uh, They are. You know, in 2017, they amended their code of conduct after the Harvey Weinstein scandal when he was ousted from the membership. Will will most likely face some kind of disciplinary action, but an insider told me they don't think he'll lose his Oscar. There, CBS cited Weinstein as an example of Hollywood displaying its values by punishing him for his misdeeds. I also heard Harvey Weinstein being cited today by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. There's even people in Hollywood that are that are opposed, um, you know, to, to to providing protections for parents and enforcing parents' rights. You know, the one thing I'll say about that is, if the people who held up degenerates like Harvey Weinstein up as exemplars and as heroes and as all that, if those are the types of people that are opposing us on parents' rights, I wear that like a badge of honor. There, DeSantis cited him as an example of Hollywood displaying its depravity by endorsing him and his misdeeds. Well, isn't that a little like saying, wait, I'm going to listen to a Floridian? That's the state that allowed serial killer Ted Bundy to murder all those girls. Yes, but it was also the state that caught and executed Ted Bundy. Sure, after the murdering got all inconvenient. Or you could argue that, all right, if Hollywood values are the stand-in for right and wrong, Harvey Weinstein's accusers number in the low hundreds, they're affiliated with Hollywood. Ron DeSantis would certainly say, well, they must have good values since they're against Weinstein and Weinstein is the embodiment of bad values. Why don't we do a poll of Ashley Judd, Mira Servino, Kate Blanchett, Angelina Jolie, Daryl Hannah, could list a hundred more. I am sure they all oppose the piece of legislation that Ron DeSantis was signing. This piece of legislation is the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill, which is now, I guess, the so-called Don't Say Gay Law. I did a lot of research on it. I was mindful of not allowing myself to be overly influenced by assertions of activists. And I always knew that if I were in the Florida legislature, I would vote no on the bill, but I did wonder if the far-reaching, chilling effects would be real, or if it was mostly a toothless attempt by conservatives to address their constituents' anxiety over change. My conclusion is this. The bill has no positive value. And really the analysis just needs to stop there. The state banning discussions of the existence of homosexuality among kindergartners to third graders does not solve a problem. There weren't any abuses of pedagogical best practice that couldn't be remedied at the local level. A kid writing a Valentine's Day card to his two mommies, will it be banned under the bill? It might, it's vague, it's purposefully vague. It's also vague when it comes to what it says about older children. Doesn't seem to improve things, could open the door, to empowering one or two cranky parents to really wreak havoc with education in a classroom or a district. The arguments for the bill are as threadbare as what you just heard. Ron DeSantis warning of pro-Weinstein Hollyweird values coming for your kids. Okay, now let me be fair to, not DeSantis, I'm not gonna be unfair to him. He made a terrible argument. He should own that. But let's be fair to argumentation. DeSantis made a terrible argument. I played that one there. There are a lot of others to choose from. But this particular DeSantis bad argument, was associating his opponent's position with the boogeyman, Harvey Weinstein. Aren't I just making a boogeyman out of the demagogically inclined Ron DeSantis to discredit the bill? The difference is, I'm also making an affirmative case that Bill 1557 is poorly structured, chills discussion, and is sloppily written as to areas of possible legitimacy. The bill will not affect positive change. And to boost, the most vocal defenses of the bill are in fact terribly argued. The least bad arguments aren't actually good arguments. They raise the possibility that the law might not be quite as bad as detractors predict. But it might, or it could be half bad, which wouldn't be any good. The most tangible effect will be a boost to Ron DeSantis' political ambitions on the idea that he'll be the man to pass legislation that doesn't set us back quite as much as you might have been told. On the show today, I spiel about daylight saving time. Will I fall back to my old positions, or will a talk with a Harvard neurology professor spring me forward to a new mindset? But first, the 2012 shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut were familiar as American stories, bodies, lobbying groups, politicians, access to guns. But there was another aspect of the shooting that had become common that the public might not have known about. Conspiracy communities were latching onto mass shootings and calling them false flag operations. So don't ever think the globalists that have hijacked this country wouldn't stage something like this. They kill little kids all day, every day. And it's not our government, it's the globalist. Sandy Hook was a watershed in terms of those discredited theories getting widespread acceptance by an unbelievable number of people. And Unbelievable is right, because the families of Newtown were further traumatized by Alex Jones and those of his ilk in ways that were hard to fully appreciate. Elizabeth Williamson, in her new book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth, delves into how the conspiracists worked to fuel themselves and how a few of the families successfully fought back. The name of the book is Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Elizabeth Williamson is the author. Now, when you hear that title and when you think about that subject and you don't know what the book's about, you may say, well, it's probably about, now think of the list, guns, mental illness, could be about the NRA, could be about grief, could be about politics, could be about a community coming together the universality of inexplicable tragedy. There's so many things the book could be about, but there is a unique thing, or it was unique at the time, that is the through line of this compelling book. And it is how the people who went through this inexplicable tragedy had their tragedy compounded by trolls on the internet, including one brash guy in Austin, Texas, who wound up losing a huge lawsuit. Alex Jones was his name. How we got here what it portends for the rest of America, and things like the January 6th insurrection. Elizabeth Williamson, thank you for joining me on The Gist.
1: Hey, Mike, it's great to be with you.
0: When you got assigned this story, well, when you first got assigned this story, you couldn't have really known how the internet would metastasize around the conspiracy theories. But what did you think, what popped out at you as the most important facts about The Sandy Hook tragedy.
1: So, when I first learned in the middle of 2018 that um, the families of two Sandy Hook victims had sued Alex Jones, the InfoWars conspiracy broadcaster in Texas, I thought that this would be a really interesting test of the First Amendment and whether, as Jones and other conspiracy theorists repeatedly claim, uh, it protects falsehoods that are spread online by millions of people. That in the case of the Sandy Hook, families, and others result in years of torment. But I talked with Lenny Posner, who is the father of Noah Posner, the youngest Sandy Hook victim, and he kind of educated me to the fact that this was a foundational story about how false narratives and misinformation have gained traction in society. And you can follow that through line from Sandy Hook to Pizzagate, QAnon, Charlottesville, coronavirus myths, and the 2020 election that brought violence to the Capitol.
0: And Lenny Posner was Uniquely situated to understand this, wasn't he?
1: He was. He has a technological background. He had studied computers since the beginning of the industry. He was always interested. And he really was knowledgeable about how the algorithms of social media push this kind of material to people who are already conspiratorially minded and how it brings that isolated person. I mean, we all know we've all had somebody in our family who is sort of a conspiracist, maybe corner you at the family reunion to tell you their JFK theories. But the Internet and social media in particular helps these people find each other and they embroider these grand theories like they did around Sandy Hook and they can speed them around the world in minutes.
0: Well, he wasn't just adept at technology and didn't just have an understanding of the dynamic. He was literally an Alex Jones listener before his son was tragically killed in Sandy Hook.
1: He was. Yeah, he used to, between driving between clients when he was working as a tech consultant, and he still does this work, he would... Um, yeah, he would listen to Alex Jones. He, he would entertain, he, he sort of used entertaining conspiracy theories in those days as something like the Da Vinci Code, you know, um, or the moon landing, that kind of thing. Alex Jones was a milder character back then, but it did give Lenny an understanding of how conspiracy theory, uh, how conspiracy world actually works and how people within it think.
0: And there was a there was a reference in your book to he used to debate people about 9-11 truthers. Which side of that was he on?
1: <laughs> I don't know about 9-11. I, the moon landing is something I remember specifically. He, he was the contrarian on that. He sort of sees conspiracy theories as I think he told me the quote was the other side of information. You know, just kind of an intellectual exercise. Well, what if this didn't happen? You know, what if there what if there really was a grand lie? And it's not like government hasn't lied to us. You know, they have historically. So um, so I think this gave him a special window into this.
0: So among the Sandy Hook families, and that's that's a rather large circle when you take into account everyone who could, well, the total death toll, but everyone who could credibly claim to speak for one of the victims, and they don't always have the same opinion. But among the families, was he the first one to realize what these lunatics online were saying and that it could have an effect on the lives of the people living in reality?
1: Yes, he really was. Um, Again, because of his background and also because of a very specific instance. Um, And that's when Veronique De La Rosa, who is, um, you know, they were married at the time, Noah's mom, um, again, the youngest Sandy Hook victim, she spoke with Anderson Cooper in front of the town hall in downtown Newtown just reminiscing about Noah. What was he like? What does she want the world to know about him? Um, She made some comments about, you know, these kinds of weapons don't belong in the hands of the general public, etc. There was one moment um, in which, so Alex Jones and his Infowars team pulled the video of that interview down from the web. In so doing, they created like a video compression glitch, They pointed to that glitch to say that this was filmed in front of a green screen, that this was a fraud and that she was faking her interview.
0: So to underline this, this is what's sometimes called a digi hit, or if, you, if you're watching TV and you see a little pixel that's off. So Alex Jones discerned that that was going on on Anderson Cooper's nose, I think. But testimony from people within his organization later revealed that the interview went out perfectly clean on CNN because it really did take place in Newtown. But when Alex Jones's staff transferred it to a form that he could use on his show, it created this weird glitch. And from that, and really he was just looking to for an excuse, as you point out, from that was the first seed of what would become this unbelievably huge and destructive conspiracy.
1: Yes, that's right. And in my book, I talked to a video forensic expert who actually found that glitch and figured out where it had come from. He found the video online that Jones's staff had used, pulled it down, created the glitch and then pointed to it as the, quote, anomaly that, you know, quote, again, proved that this was some kind of fraud.
0: Right, so he has a huge radio show and radio has a lot of protections, maybe protections that even Facebook doesn't have or uh, entities that are subject to Section 230. That was, at least in the beginning, seen as well, it's gonna be very, very hard to try to infringe upon Alex Jones' freedom of speech What was the theory that they went after Alex Jones with? What kind of long shot was it seen as? And what were the keys in pursuing that theory successfully?
1: So it went in a way that nobody really expected. The outcome wasn't what anybody, you know, either Jones or the families, really expected. Um, although I would, again, guess that Lenny probably could predict it. So they went after him for defamation. He had named um, Lenny uh, Posner, again, Noah Posner, youngest Sandy Hook victim by name. He had named uh, Veronique De La Rosa. He had also um, gone after Robbie Parker, whose daughter Emily died at Sandy Hook. Um, you know, uh, mocking um, Robbie's statement about Emily because he had done a kind of half laugh as he stepped to the lectern to deliver his statement. He was the first parent to speak publicly or the first family member to speak publicly after the shooting. Um, He mocked him as being an actor. So these individuals were kind of the key players in these lawsuits. So Altogether, there were four defamation lawsuits filed in Texas and in Connecticut um, from the families of 10 victims and an FBI agent who was implicated in one of the false plots. Um, So, jones initially said i'm gonna fight these cases i'm gonna prove that the second or sorry not the second the first amendment protects me that my right to free speech allows me to say whatever i want even if it harms these individuals and you know brings some stalkers and death threats and all of the things that had happened over the years um, and i'm gonna strike a blow on behalf of all of us but what happened was He so stonewalled the process, didn't deliver documents that were ordered by the court, failed to show up for depositions in some cases, um, just was so contemptuous of the justice system that by late last year, judges found him liable by default in all four of these cases. So that was a sweeping victory for the families.
0: Yeah. Do you think his strategy was, well, if I actually produce the documents, I'm going to lose anyway, so I might as well drag my feet? Or was he pursuing something else that could have also been maybe not even a legal strategy, but legal plus content for his show equals, you know, his version of victory in the long run?
1: And also just, you know, who this man is, you know, I mean, can you imagine if you have a conspiratorial mindset like Alex Jones does, can you imagine the idea that you have to throw open your books to, you know, what he saw? He, he said from the beginning that his belief was that Hillary Clinton was behind these lawsuits or, you know, the, the anti gun lobby or Democrats. So in his, you know, at least he claimed that this would be tantamount to delivering, you know, an inside view of your business to all of your assembled enemies, you know, the globalists included, I guess. But in actual fact, it was, it was probably a delaying tactic. Um, I think that was, you know, that was what the judges said. They just kind of threw up their hands at the end. I mean, this is just a sort of, you know, break glass kind of, um, decision to make for a judge, you know, they want the system to play out and to work. But this was just, he was so stonewalling the process that they couldn't get anywhere. You know, they were mired in the court for three years.
0: Yeah. I've often wondered though about Jones, maybe he had, you know, to think about it in poker terms, he had a losing hand and no matter what he did, he'd have lost. But also he's a guy who has successfully put it in quotes in terms of the money he's made and the attention he's gotten, he has been able to define his own reality. So in poker terms, that's like he's been this extremely successful bluffer. And I wonder if he pursued this strategy that had worked for him so long um, out of desperation or because he really deluded himself that it would work this time.
1: Well, for my book, at the beginning of the lawsuits, I did talk with a number of lawyers who had varying views on whether the First Amendment protected Jones in this case, right? Um, But what they said was, this is such a sympathetic group of plaintiffs that you are really in hot water the minute they sue you. Um, And, you know, you could argue about the merits of that. Um, But the bottom line was there were a number of people whom he had named and and about whom he had repeatedly said over years that they faked their own children's deaths. So that, on the one hand, is a pretty damning thing to say about someone. And on the other, the fact that you have the, you know, the grieving parents of six year old children um, suing you is just a really. It's a
0: really tough challenge. So you know the the Sandy Hook families actually have plenty of money. It became a problem, another thing that you document in the book, and they won these cases and they got money. Uh, I guess the cases. Well, not yet. Yeah, but the case. <laughs> yeah. So the cases at least served notice to anyone who was persuadable that Alex Jones and those of his ilk were lying. But what do you think changed because of either the legal remedies, everything that Lenny Posner did, or anything else that the Sandy Hook families went through and fought against?
1: Yeah. So, you know, you talk about the money In actual fact, they haven't, you know, they haven't gotten, first of all, the the Alex Jones cases are, they begin actually next month. Um, So we don't know how much in damages, you know, the juries will decide on for the families. Um, But- I think more than any sort of material damages they get is the idea that they have put this out there that you know they they're sending up a warning you know this is kind of a flare to all of us that what they saw around Sandy Hook actually repeated itself again and again around all other major events you know the pursuit of these kinds of lies and the willingness of people who believe them to confront and to defend them with violence, we saw January 6th. I mean, all the same players, Um, you know, as you said, you know, the Infowars group was there, Alex Jones was there, he helped raise money for Trump's rally on the morning of the insurrection. You know, this is a phenomenon in American life. And so what they wanted by telling me their stories and reliving this, you know, awful chapter of their lives was to say, We want people to read this book and get mad and push for some kind of policy solution so that this doesn't keep happening because it's undermining not just, you know, the lives of vulnerable people,
0: but our democracy. So what are the what is the policy solution other than suing after the after damages are incurred?
1: So Congress, I mean, one of the rare points of bipartisan agreement is that something needs to be done, whether it's around Section 230, you know, limiting that legal immunity that the social media platforms have when this kind of material travels and harms people, um, coming up with maybe a unique policy solution to that, some kind of standard that they have to meet just like newspapers do, Um that Those are some things they're looking at. There's also in the sort of social psychology front, there are some things that are being devised to keep people from glomming on to these theories, you know, before they become, you know, part of their social fabric where they don't want to give them up. Um, So there's some interesting research being done there. I think the main thing that's happened here is that the families have raised awareness that this is not just a problem around them or around mass shooting victims. It's a problem for all of us, and it's created some real issues for us. I mean, you know, the pandemic, you know, if we didn't have a pretty big swath of Americans who were refusing to be vaccinated based on spurious claims We would have a different world today. You know, we'd have a lot more of our loved ones with us. Um, Likewise, you know, the issues with our democracy. I mean, it used to be, I mean, I was a foreign correspondent in Eastern Europe for 10 years, and it used to be it took a sophisticated foreign adversary like Russia to mess with your elections or to to spread disinformation across the country. Now we're doing it ourselves.
0: Elizabeth Williamson is the author of Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Pleasure, Elizabeth.
1: Likewise, Mike, thank you.
0: And now the spiel, it was with unanimous consent that the Senate voted to adopt daylight saving time as the standard time throughout the land. Henceforth time will need no modifier, be it standard or daylight saving, it will just be called time. And for a time, a long time, this was my position. I asked presidential candidates about it, they laughed. As if, in the case of senators I talked to, it wasn't a serious proposal that could eventually be taken up by their very body, the US Senate. But it is bodies that will take up or be put down with the sun or slightly in opposition to it. For after I championed my idea of basking in sunlight longer into the day, I was alerted that there was a community who disagreed with me and this was not an easy community to dismiss. They were the scientists. Sleep scientists, a robust and well-rested lot who I hear were universal in their condemnation of daylight saving time as just time. Now I have to say, the main thrust of my proposal was to eliminate the shift. I hate the shift, the falling and the spring and the spring and the falling, awful. And I was familiar with studies, a bit familiar, that showed the impact of the shift was bad, more accidents, more heart attacks. But I thought that was because of the shift to daylight saving time, not because of daylight saving time. I said to myself, well, if being out of sync with a natural time zone was so bad. How does China deal? They have one time zone for the whole huge country. I haven't heard much about their far flung provinces, the ones far away from Beijing, dropping in productivity. It's not a thing that's associated with much of China. And how do you tell if daylight saving time is to blame and not the shift to daylight saving time? Losing the hour of springing forward, it hurts. Furthermore, I had heard about the sleep experts, but I said to myself, do sleep problems really spike during daylight saving time? I know some sleep experts. They don't say to me, oh, can't talk. This is daylight saving time, Mike. This is my heavy season. Like an accountant has April 15, I have daylight saving time. And all this concern about natural light, you gotta have the natural light, live with the natural light. We haven't lived by natural light since Edison, no wait since candles. These were the counterarguments running through my mind. But in truth, it wasn't so much that I was actively rebutting the counterarguments, it's that I wasn't hearing most of them. I did research into what objections there were to permanent daylight saving time, and I did not encounter the health objections or the sleep expert objections. The objection I kept hearing it really was kids standing alone in the dark waiting for the school bus. A couple weeks ago, I documented this on my program. It is a rarer... This this program right here, the gist. It's not that common occurrence that kids even take the bus to school. And concerns about kids getting hit as they waited for the bus, this seems to be just a product of sensationalist reporting in the 70s. I felt like I did not deserve letters like this one from a listener, Mike. I like your podcast for challenging conventional wisdom. And so I was disappointed when you attacked opposition to making daylight saving time permanent based on claiming it was driven by the safety of kids going to school. Classic straw man argument. Pick one reason, pick on it, and ignore anything to the contrary. No, not a straw man, sir. The only man that I was seeing or hearing about. Kids in the dark. Kids in the dark. But in the spirit of inquiry, I decided to stop cursing the darkness and expose myself to the light of a leading expert, Elizabeth Clerman, professor of neurology at Harvard.
2: I would argue for permanent standard time, not eliminating, but permanent standard time.
0: Clerman is a research investigator at the Massachusetts General Hospital and a physician in the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders at Brigham and Women's Hospital she's qualified. She walked me through the best arguments for permanent adoption of standard time, not daylight saving time. First off, changing to daylight saving time. That really is terrible.
2: We know that there are more heart attacks, more cardiovascular disturbances. There's more missed doctor's appointments. There's more car accidents. There's more many, many things that happen in the spring, just in the first
0: week. And what about when we were weeks into daylight saving time? Well, She put some analogies on the table. One, think of changing time zones, which is really what happens when you lose an hour, gain an hour. It's you're shifting to a different time zone. Think of that like jet lag. And if you think about daylight savings time, it's
2: like living in the wrong time zone. You're living in Chicago with the sleep-wake cycle of Chicago, but you're trying to work
0: on Boston time. And that's the equivalent of social jet lag. Okay, I buy it. Clerman lays out the costs of living with jet lag. For many people, their sleep-wake cycle was different during the week-week
2: than it was on the weekend. They would get up earlier, they would go to sleep earlier, and on the weekend, they would go to sleep later and get up later. Almost as if they had jet lag, right? You're living mm-hmm. in sort of one time zone during the week and another time zone on the weekend. And the people that for whom it's worse are night owls, people who like to stay up late, and therefore, the people with more social you can study people with more social jet lag versus people with less social jet lag. And people with more social jet lag have higher obesity, higher depression, higher cigarette smoking, higher of virtually every thing that's been studied. They have worse health outcomes. And so this is an analogy of even an hour or two of shifting back and forth or shifting living against your body clock's time.
0: I thought that was an okay argument, but maybe it's not the misalignment of the sun that's causing all this rest on the weekend. Maybe it's that the weekend allows for different and more sleep because there are fewer obligations. It seems hard to isolate that one out. But there was another analogy out there, and I I have to say I found this one very compelling.
2: The difference between the eastern part of a time zone and the western part of a time zone. So if you think of a time zone as a one hour apart, one hour distance from the eastern to the western part. We can look at health on the eastern part of the time zone and the western part of the time zone. And on the western part of the time zone, there are multiple studies, at least two, that show that there's more cancer, there's more diabetes, there's other health consequences just from being on the western part of the time zone. And being on the western part of the time zone is an analogy to daylight saving time because that's where there's more misalignment of clock time.
0: This is hard to rebut. The more misaligned with the sun, a person is taking into account everything else, the more sleep they miss and the more their health suffers. Look at the Western edge, look at the Eastern edge, Western edge, less aligned with the sun, they're suffering. This was good stuff. The science was working on me and I'm not going to admit that the Harvard trained expert knew more. It could just be that she's in Massachusetts and I'm in New York, more westerly than Massachusetts. So I'm a little bit of a cognitive disadvantage. I allowed Professor Clerman to make one last argument.
2: And finally, this also means the kids are gonna be going to school in the dark.
0: Sorry, we'll not allow it, see all previous shows. But I have to say the science around time zones, that stuff seemed compelling and the scientists are united and the reasoning seems pretty strong. Dr. Klerman even played ball with my China fascination. Do you know if anyone studied the effect of, I think this is right, China has one time zone for the whole massive country? Yeah. So are are people in the Western time zone there less productive, sleepier, all the effects we're talking about?
2: If you know anybody who has access to that data, let me know, because there are a whole bunch of us (laughs) who are trying to get access to those data.
0: Absolutely. So you think that China actually has the data, they just won't give it to you?
2: (laughs) Or maybe we haven't asked the right people. I don't know. I just don't know anybody who has access.
0: I say we got to elevate that above the Wuhan lab stats. Tell the WHO. Dr. Clerman refused, however, to take a stance on the question of if just DST, always DST, was preferable to the current system of switching times that we have now. If my only options are permanent
2: daylight saving time versus switching back and forth?
0: Yes. I take the fifth. Klerman is such a devotee of standard time that she refused all my attempts at ranking the alternatives or committing to the idea that my preferred position, permanent DST, is at least less bad than the status quo. But I have to say, I did find her argument or her presentation of the studies hard to rebut. I think that permanent DST would be better than what we have now. I'd hate to imperil this a rare case of needed reform by nitpicking the proposed new rules as less than perfect, but the science seems compelling. Permanent standard time is better than permanent daylight saving time. For health, for sleep, for car accidents, but not, I maintain, for that terrible possibility of school bus stops representing a potential point of carnage at every suburban corner. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is governor at large for the Academy of Peach Fish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Ellipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu Peru, And thanks for listening.